very, very welcome. It's lovely to see you. If you're new or visiting, um, you're particularly welcome. So uh, do come and say hello to the welcome team. We'd love to connect you with the body of Christ, whether it's here or wherever it may be. Uh, last week, we began, um, we began our journey through Lent, and we started a series looking at the seven signs of Jesus from John's Gospel. So if you've got a, t- a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 2, and we'll look at the second sign of Jesus, where in rather dramatic fashion, Jesus cleanses the temple. Uh, now, just if you flip back to John, don't bother with it, but if you flip back to John chapter 1, in John chapter 1, we see that Jesus is called, in different parts of John chapter 1, he's called the Word of God, the Lamb of God, the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews, the Son of God, and the King of Israel. And last week, uh, looking at the very first miracle of Jesus, transforming the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, we, we begin to see Jesus demonstrating through these signs and wonders the truth of all these descriptors of who he is and his identity as the word of God, the lamb of God, the long-awaited Messiah, son of God and king of Israel. And now as we find ourselves in Jerusalem at Passover, here's yet another demonstration of who he is as Jesus cleanses the temple. Because what we're about to see from John chapter 2 is that Jesus really is and was the king that no one could oppose. He really was the son who was zealous for his father's house. He really was the Messiah who'd come to restore true worship and uh, the, the purity of his people and also obviously the lamb who would ultimately be sacrificed to cleanse us all from our sin. So let's have a look at John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13, but before we do that, shall we pray? Spirit of the living God, we welcome you in this place. We thank you for the warmth. Seriously, we are grateful. We just hope and pray that the temperature doesn't get in the way of us encountering your spirit. Because that's why we're here. We want to gather together as your body to meet with you. Will you come and fill us? Will you fill this place with your presence? In the name of Jesus, be glorified and lifted up. Amen. This is John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed 
in his name. Have a look at verses 13 to 17. First thing that John mentions are all of these things that Jesus finds are going on in the temple, none of which have any place there. There are all of these pens and sort of stalls, if you can imagine it, where all of this, there's oxen and sheep and birds that are all being held there before they're being sold for sacrifice. And then over here, you've got all of the, or over there, I'm not pointing at anyone in the you've got all the money changers, and they're sitting at their tables, and they're, they're changing money for all of the pilgrims who would have traveled far and wide uh, so that they could buy the animals that they needed to make the sacrifices, and so that you could also you know, pay the exorbitant temple tax. Uh, you've got to remember some of the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, certainly for some of the major feasts like Passover, they would have traveled uh, from Egypt, from Syria, from Greece, uh, Asia Minor, some even traveling as far as Babylon and Persia. And so you can, you know, picture the scene. There's just this cacophony of noise, all of this commotion you know, far more in keeping with a, a bustling market than a temple. You've got these market traders selling their wares, the noise of haggling over prices. You've got cows mooing and sheep bleating. It's just like utter chaos. How are you supposed to enter into God's presence to worship and to pray and to be still and to be quiet with all of that kind of commotion going on? And this wasn't all happening, you know, outside the temple, you know, down the street or somewhere else. This is all happening in the outer courts, the courts of the Gentiles, just this massive money-making business operation. And the temple authorities, they they didn't seem phased by it at all. They didn't seem to mind at all. And, and, And why would they be? Because this was a great source of income for them. They were making a fortune off the back of all of this. And... All of this, Jesus sees it going on. He sees it as a, as a terrible scandal. He sees it as a real desecration of the temple. And he resolves to clean it up. Uh, verse 15, he makes a whip out of cords. He dries out all from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle, scatters the coins of the money changers, overturns their tables. To those who are selling the doves, he says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And if it was chaotic before, now, after this, it just must have been utter pandemonium. You've got all, now you've got all of the sheep and the cattle running wild. You've got all the doves and the pigeons all kind of flying all over the place. People are rushing and scurrying everywhere just to get out of the way. There are tables being flipped. There's money flying all over the place. And Jesus does all of this single-handedly. And no one dares to try and stop him. No one, uh, no one tries to arrest him. No one tries to intervene. They all just literally, I guess, try and get out of the way. And apparently in ancient times, the whip was recognized as a, a symbol of royal authority. And so here's Jesus, the true king of Israel, asserting his right as a ruler over Jerusalem and as ruler over the temple. Now, it will come as no surprise that what Jesus does here instantly causes like a big problem uh, between Jesus and the chief priests who in their mind have absolute authority over the temple. And this rift uh, is further widened when Jesus clears the temple again 
Now, there's some debate about this, but most theologians reckon that Jesus actually clears the temple uh, two times, uh, twice, and and the second time is after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday. Uh, Now, back in John chapter 19, when they're asking him for a sign to prove the authority that he has to do what it is he's doing, Jesus replies in verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, remember, all of this is taking place, it's like three years before Jesus' crucifixion, but he already knows that these same people are going to try and destroy him, and uh, they, they would, in fact, succeed. And so, as we saw last week, right from the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is already making his journey towards the cross. He's already got his eyes fixed on the cross three years before it even happens. And as we know from the end of the gospel accounts, Jesus um, willingly gives himself up to be arrested, to go through this sham trial before he gets handed over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. But since he's done nothing wrong, the chief priests and scribes, they have real difficulty trying to come up with a suitable charge that that they could use against him. And so in his trial before the Sanhedrin, uh, just days before his crucifixion, they find what they feel is going to be reasonable cause, and it's by using the very words that John speaks, uh, Jesus speaks in, in John chapter 2, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Don't turn to it now, but Matthew 26, uh, verse 59, uh, describes it like this. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. This idea that the temple could be destroyed at all was utter Uh, blasphemy to them but Jesus wasn't speaking about the temple building at all John 21 uh, 2 21 makes that clear but the temple that he had spoken of was of his body the temple that Jesus is speaking about is his body but what is the importance of the temple there's all this talk of temples like what is the importance of the temple according to the bible Uh, Why is it that this whole scene from John chapter 2 of Jesus cleansing the temple, why does it matter? Why is it so important? Well, settle in. Um, If you were to go back to the city of Jerusalem sometime in this first part, this part of the the first uh, century, by far the biggest thing that you would have seen was was the temple. Uh, standing right at the heart of Jerusalem is this beautiful building designed by King David, built by Solomon, which was believed to be, in essence, the dwelling place of God. And whilst we might think about God's dwelling place as being in heaven, the whole point of this earthly temple was that it was to be a a physical place where um, God's heavenly realm kind of touches earth. Uh, It was to be, in effect, the the physical, tangible embodiment, if you like, of the power and the presence and the rule and the reign of God on earth. The temple was where God dwelt, and it was was from where he ruled and he reigned over all creation as king. 
Even Solomon, who built the temple, he wasn't convinced that, you know, the temple could contain the God of the universe. His prayer of dedication in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon even says this. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? I mean, the heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I've built? You see, the the, the temple building was intended um, really to be like just a symbol pointing to the fact, like another sign, if you like, um, that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is, is, is really all about. The whole creation account demonstrates that God dwells in and resides in and is present in the whole of creation. Again, don't turn to it now, but Genesis chapter 1, God creates this ordered world out of the void, uh, he speaks these words of life over a series of um, six days, and that culminates on the seventh day, not with like a physical structure, not with a, a temple, but with this temporal space and temporal, you know, time, space in time, what we now know of as the Sabbath, what Rabbi Herschel calls a cathedral in time. And it's this place, it's this space where God's presence fills creation and he takes up his rule and his reign and his rest. And then later in the Old Testament, we see a similar thing. And we first we'll see it with the tent of meeting and then later we see it with the temple. We, all, both of these things were designed and constructed and then dedicated after which the priest or the king would enter in and rule and reign in God's presence from those spaces. And then in Genesis chapter two, we get another reflection of this whole uh, thing about temples as either physical spaces or temporal spaces, you know, spaces in time as being these places of God's presence and God's rest. And this time in Genesis chapter two, the focus is kind of like on the earth, it's on the land. And right at the very center of the land in Genesis chapter two was this place called Eden. In in Hebrew, that means uh, delight. And in the middle of Eden, God plants a garden. And the garden becomes this place where God and humanity dwell together in perfect harmony, which is why the temple designed by David and built by Solomon has got all of these motifs of the garden in it. And so there's all of these flowers everywhere and there's this gold, even the menorah is kind of reflective and symbolizes the tree of life. And so the garden becomes the place where God dwells with his people. And just as an aside, in the temple, um, the priests and the Levites, they're instructed to work and to keep the temple. And that's exactly the same instruction and the mandate that was given to humanity in the Garden of Eden, that we were to work and to keep the garden, work and to keep the earth, work and to keep creation. They were to work and to keep the temple. And so in effect, Adam and Eve were like the first priests But as we know, instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and so they ended up exiled from the garden. Uh, It all went pear-shaped, apple-shaped. They're exiled from the temple um, uh, uh, that was Eden, in effect, and separated from the presence of God. And in the exact same way, just like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders uh, also wanted to rule on their own terms, and so they too were exiled. And so in 586 BC, the physical temple was destroyed, Uh, by the Babylonians, and the whole nation ended up in exile. 
Um, and as they sat by the rivers of Babylon, uh, remembering Zion and Boniem, uh, they were left, I love the fact that half of you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, look it up, um, we can sing it next week. They're left wondering, uh, you know, has God given up on Israel? Uh, will God restore and rebuild the temple? Will God bring about a new creation? What on earth is going on? Well, again, this is where reading again scripts of the Old Testament is really important because the Old Testament prophets, they anticipated a day when God would actually indeed reestablish the temple, uh, but not just through bricks and mortar, but through a whole new priesthood. And when that came to pass, that's when God's presence would once again fill the whole of creation. Now, after the Babylonian exile, the Israelites did indeed return to the land, and you read all about that in Nehemiah and Ezra, and they did rebuild the temple. But even that temple didn't work out to be quite the way that they and that the prophets had hoped. In fact, latter prophets like Malachi um, said this, that that temple was like hopelessly corrupt. Hopelessly corrupt. And then we come to the um, New Testament, the story of Jesus, and we encounter Jesus, the true temple and the true priest. And Jesus said of himself that through him, God's presence, God's rule and his reign and his rest was going to come into our world in a new way um, with Jesus presenting himself as this new kind of priest. And Jesus says that God's presence, God's rest and God's rule and God's reign is going to come about not because Jesus is going to start working as a priest in the temple, but that God's presence was going to fill the whole world through Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. In effect, Jesus is claiming that he was the true temple and this new temple was going to spread out to the whole of creation. Are you still with me? Well done. Because it gets even bigger than that. You know, after his resurrection, Jesus says that God's presence will come to dwell in and among his followers. So that his followers would, in effect, become like mini portable temples. Communities of people where God's presence rests and rules. And that's exactly the Bible's vision and view of the church, which, of course, is described as a temple. But... And this is really, really important. This temple isn't a physical building. Praise God. It's people. It's you and it's me and it's all of our brothers and sisters in Christ from all of the incredibly diverse and wonderful, resplendent representations and streams and denominations of the body of Christ from all over the world. Peter puts it pretty well when he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a temple of the Holy Spirit to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then if we go on to the end of the story, bear with me, it's going to make sense in a minute, I hope go on to the end of the story, you know, is there ever going to be like another physical temple? Not, not exactly. What we see is a renewed temple just like the one we started out with in Genesis uh, chapter 1. And this is because the new creation that we read about at the end of the book doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rules and rests and reigns with his people. 
At Jesus' uh, crucifixion, you'll remember the, the temple curtain, you know, that separated uh, the rest, the temple curtain separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, which is where uh, God's presence dwelt. Um, at Jesus' crucifixion, that temple was torn in half. And what was the significance of that? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice who basically accomplished all that the temple in Jerusalem could never, never do. It was through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that he made a way for God to not only dwell with his people, but for God to dwell in his people. And Jesus shows us what it means to live as God's temple, allowing his presence to dwell with his people with no need for a physical building. And the New Testament writers, they, they continue to use this like temple language, but they're no longer talking about a building. When they write about the temple in the New Testament, they're talking about the people of God. They're talking about, they're talking about us a lot. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Now, at face value, we can kind of look at that and we like read that and it sounds a little bit like it's a little bit individualistic. Like, it's all about me. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, which is true, but um, it's not just that. The trouble is, in English, we, we don't really have a grammatically correct way of differentiating between you singular and you plural. And all of the you's in this text of Paul's, they're all you plurals. They're all you's. I don't even know what to do about that. Um, all, it mean, means all. I mean, you all, uh, all of you. You know, not just you, one you, but all of you together. All of us together. And so you are all together, along with all of your body, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ from all other different denominations. You are all together a temple of the Holy Spirit. And all of that has some pretty interesting implications, both kind of for the early church, uh, but also for us today as to how we think about church. Things like, you know, God's intent is that there's very much an inbuilt and communal and community aspect to being part of God's family. You see it really clearly in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul uses the metaphor of the body of Christ to describe the church and the way in which its diverse members all need one another. And then alongside that, there's this inherent um, assumption of teamwork, of cooperation, of unity as, as the people of God function as God's temple today. Uh, throughout the Bible, the temple is where God dwells with his people. So if we are the people of God and the people of God are the temple, it means it's through these people. It means it's through us that God's presence and his rule and his reign and his rest is to spread out across the world. Back in the ancient world, you know, people would travel, as I've said, from far and wide to encounter God at the temple in Jerusalem. They all made pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Now, the people of God are the temple and we are called to take God's presence and his rule and his reign out into the world. And you see that in Acts 1a, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Okay, 
So, what has all this talk about an ancient building got to do with any of us? Why do we care? What does it mean for our bodies to be temples? Uh, what's any of this got to do with John chapter two? John chapter two? Good questions. Uh, as followers of Jesus, the concept of us being God's temple basically frames our entire spiritual life and our calling. It's absolutely foundational and fundamental. Are we supposed to get to work on rebuilding some ancient building on the exact spot where it once stood so that others can come and meet with God? Absolutely not. Not at all. God's calling you, and when I say you, I mean all of you, I mean us, to function as a little temple today, wherever you are. In the final uh, chapters of the Bible, in Revelation 21, 22, um, John writes about his vision of heaven after Jesus returns. And what we see is this extraordinary city of God. But when we look at the city, notice it starts in a garden and ends in a city. But when we look at the city, something is conspicuously absent. And what's absent from the city in Revelation is there's no temple in the city. And why would there be? Jesus is right there with his people. And so when we look ahead to the end of the story, what we lost right back at the start, right back in the garden temple, is totally and utterly restored to us in the city. Revelation 21 verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God, once again, dwelling with his people. What's all of this got to do with uh, John chapter 2 and Jesus' second sign? Um, well, I think it's fair to say that Jesus wants to clean up the temple. Uh, and by that, I mean not just the physical temple, you know, not the building, but us both as individuals and as the church. You know, and thinking back to the wedding at Cana, I think... At the moment, um, rather than doing so with a whip uh, to disrupt and cause chaos, uh, I think just as he did uh, by turning water into wine, I think Jesus wants to bring transformation and change uh, to our hearts uh, so that rather than choosing those things, as was the case with the temple back in Jerusalem in the first century, choosing those things that dishonor him and at the same, at the same time defile both us and his presence in us, um, that we are choosing uh, the things of life that bring glory to him. And that choice in the Bible is, is, is quite simply called repentance. Um, the act of choosing to turn away from one set of behaviors and instead towards another, usually in completely opposite direction. Uh, the decision the priests needed to make was to turn away from their corruption and their spiritual abuse and their abuse of power and instead to choose to serve God and his people in humility with integrity and honor. And that in actual fact is a choice being faced by many in leadership across the church today. Um, but that's a whole other sermon series probably. But the same invitation is going out to each one of us today, exactly the same one. Um, what might be some of the ways in which we are dishonoring the presence of God in our own lives, in the temples, in our own temples, mini temples of the Holy Spirit?
Are there ways in which our hearts and our inner lives actually look more like a reflection of the outer courts of the temple in Jerusalem, metaphorically filled, you know, with moneylenders and animals and noise and frenzy and corruption? As I say, fortunately for us, I don't think Jesus is about to crack the whip. I don't think he's about to barge into our lives and rant and rail. Romans 2 verse 4 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So my invitation, I guess, to us all this morning is just to take some time to ask the Spirit of God to give us a vision of what it looks like for God's rule and reign and rest to dwell in us and through us as his mini temples. And as we do so, maybe the words of Psalm 139 are not a bad place to start. Search me, my God, and know my heart. See, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, let's ask him to transform the water of our unhelpful choices into the wine of the fullness of his kingdom. As together, as his body, we seek to bring honor and glory to him in and through his presence and his rule and his reign and his rest dwelling in and through each one of us.